Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Recording in progress. Co-op. This morning, we had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Don Carpenter. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Vernon. How are you? Great, great, great. Should I call you Don, Dr. Don, or Dr. Carpenter? What would you like to be called? <laughs> well, hey, you is fine. Um, <laughs> hey. No, my students and my listeners uh, call me Dr. Don, I think because they like the alliteration. Um, so we just go with it, whatever. Okay. So let's start talking. Where are you now? Oh, actually, I'm sitting in the heart of uh, Napa Valley. Uh, I'm at a, um, a donor conference. Part of my job uh, revolves around bringing in resources for the work we do, so you have to go where the money is. So that's where I am this morning. And where do you live normally? Oh, my home is in Washington, D.C., the oh. nation's capital, as you well know, um, our, our hometown and uh, just where my heart is. And that's where I am right now. Beautiful day here in the nation's capital. Don, you work for Georgetown. What do you do there? Oh, a lot of things. Um, sometimes I say I'm a, a psychiatrist, a, a tour tour director or whatever, but my uh, formal placement is the founding director of a project called the Solidarity Economy Workshop. And we do multimedia projects um, bringing to life the stories and the themes of um, this uh, emerging field called uh, Solidarity Economics. All right, I want to come back to solidarity economics, but before that, let's talk about your history. Where did you grow up and go to school? Well, I grew up in the industrial Midwest, which isn't so industrial these days. I came um, as a first-generation college student to my beloved Washington, D.C., to study political science, thinking I was going to be a political journalist. Uh, uh, God had other plans for that, but um, at uh, American University. And so I stayed for a graduate degree there, um, then a graduate degree from the University of Maryland, and uh, then my doctorate at Georgetown. So it sounds like you have three graduate degrees and a doctorate, three masters right. and a doctorate. Okay. Mm-hmm. You like to study. <laughs> I'm a reader, <laughs> a lifelong learner. Uh, whether you know, I, I bet that resonates with your your listeners. I mean, we all absorb, um, you know, the. Uh, the interestingness, I don't think that's a word, but the um, the beauty of the world. And so for me, I find, you know, the thinkers of the past incredibly inspiring. Uh, I'm not much of a fiction reader, but I pretty much uh, gravitate to history, theology and philosophy, uh, some economics. But uh, yeah, I love I love all of that. And you're the, you're the first one in your family to get a to go to college. To go to college, yeah, um, and I went all the way. So, um, in fact, it was actually one of my heartbreaks. Um, my father died a year before I got my doctorate, and um, so he never got to see that. But I know he's uh, with me all the way. So, what kind of work did your father and mother do in the Rust Belt or in the 
<laughs> well, that's an interesting story. They actually own a bar um, it, and still in existence. It's called the Windsor Pub, but it's a blue collar bar. And um, But my dad started out life um, as a auto worker. Um, he made tires actually for the Goodyear Corporation. And actually his experience was um, very impactful on my life. I was an infant uh, in those days and uh, there was a labor strike forced to move um, to another part of the country and was there for maybe a year very unhappy as it was the um, the rural south and our family was from uh, northeast ohio and uh, so we moved back and that's when my dad opened uh, actually it was probably his second or third bar by that time he was doing it as his side gig early early on before i came into existence mm-hmm. and um and that's where I got my first uh, job, and I, I got to write at some point my parents' paychecks, and so uh, it's very empowering as a young person uh, to uh, write your parents' paychecks. Um, but I, you know, did all manner of jobs except for behind the bar kind of things. I reconciled the receipts for the lottery. I um, took the coins out of the pool table. I uh, transferred. This will some of your listeners may understand this, but there's jukeboxes where you have 45 records, and you uh, there are a hundred of them in a in a carousel. And on Sundays, my job was to take them. Out out and uh, replace them with the oldies. So Sundays was oldies day. Um, but that was how, that's where I learned all about work. Yeah. What's well, a fascinating ability to learn about not only work, but entrepreneurship. Owning a pub can be extremely hard work and long hours. And you've got all of those different jobs you talked about. You did accounting, the receivables, the payables, all kinds of different things inside the pub probably too young to be behind the bar slinging the drinks. Yeah, exactly. I never, in fact, when I became old enough to do that, I never did it. Uh, By that time, I'd gone off to college. But my younger brother uh, took on that part of the business and um, still going at it. So he's uh, 47 now. And uh, he's he's doing it. He did it ever since he was legally able to to carry a beer. So he's still in the pub? Does he own the pub Mm -hmm. now? Your brother? Yeah, well, um, partially there's a complicated story about you know family economics, but my uh, my stepmother has uh, taken on. Well, she's always over the years been the the key person on the administrative side, and um, back in the day, my dad was the um, the person side of the business, and then um, over the years, my dad taught my brother how to do that work, okay. and so he's taken on the role that my dad had, and so we're, they're still going. And uh, my favorite thing about their business. Um, was that they had a sign out front um, that said, best burgers on this earth. I'm like, Dad, is there any other earth? Um, <laughs> it's like, smarty pants. <laughs> I thought you were, how do you know that? What kind of experiment have, have you done <laughs> research to know that the best one? Okay. So this this sort of work thing, you, you, you learn about work. So how has that played out in your well, no, let's go before we go there. What did you do after you graduated from, I'm trying to get to where you were on Wall Street. How did you oh, get to Wall Street? how did I get Street? there? Yes. Yeah. Actually, it's a, a kind of a, it's a story. You haven't noticed, I love telling stories, um, but my uh, challenge is always to keep them short. Yes. Um, and um, so the way I got to Wall Street was that uh, I was studying political science uh, because I wanted to be a political journalist. Um, but I, at first in my family, and anyone who has had that experience knows that it is very hard. And um, my family was um, 
not as supportive as you might imagine. You'd think someone going off for the first time and your family to go off to college, but I think they probably wanted me to stay and you know, go into the family business or stay and be a journalist in our local community. But for me, I just saw the world as bigger. And um, I, wa- I had an opportunity to go to American University as a summer student and spent a you know, summer in Washington and was just enamored. So here I was in Washington uh, studying political science. My family didn't understand because, you know, it's not a vocational degree. It's like, what do you do with a political science degree? And so on all of that, I had to work um, during and work very, very hard during my studies. And one of the jobs I had was as a corporate paralegal in a very large law firm. And I worked in um, the area where we were um, doing the documentation for new securities offerings. And so my job was to proofread the darn things. So not only did I proofread it, but I took out my calculator and I was making sure everything summed up. You have to remember, this was um, the early, early 90s um, before we had the technology that we have today where all these legal documents get circulated and nobody camps out at the financial printer's office anymore and all that. But how I made it to Wall Street was an amazing night. It was middle of the night. Our firm was doing a um, a transaction to split up a very large hotel chain into two different companies. And I was there with the CFO, the um, the man who was the head of the private equity firm that was um, arranging um, the part of the transaction, and uh, the lawyer. And I just had this moment. I'm like, who do I want to be in this room? Hmm. Do I want to be the client, the banker, or the lawyer? And um, forget about the journalists. I realized they didn't get paid enough to to get the resources I needed for this very expensive education. And so I looked around. I'm like, who's controlling the situation? And I said, it's the banker. Because without those funds, game over. And so I said, that's what I want to do. And so I went through school super fast. Um, I was able to get my undergraduate and first graduate degree in about three years, almost four. So I was very young. I was like, okay, what do I do? And I had a wonderful, wonderful mentor uh, who said, by this time I had uh, enrolled in a um, graduate degree in finance because they don't teach you what you need to know on Wall Street um, when you go study political science. You have to do a little math. And so um, I went to uh, this incredible program at the University of Maryland, which um, combined um, the uh, the public sector stuff with the finance stuff. And so for me, it was a natural progression. And uh, so that's how I got started. I became an investment banker for uh, public purpose organizations. And in those days, it was those accessing the capital markets that way were primarily governments. So get this, Vernon. My first... Um, uh, transaction that I worked on was a water and sewer bond. Okay. So, uh, in our bank, um, they used to call um, fixed income, which is the bond side of the business, the armpit of the business, because we weren't doing anything sexy. I mean, we were doing, you know, stinky bonds. Um, yeah. But anyone who follows the financial world knows that there was tremendous change um, during these years, the the 90s and the 2000s, and you saw the financialization of Wall Street, where you're actually creating pro- 
products, financial products, and actually caused a, a near collapse of our financial system in uh, 2008. But I was involved um, at the very, very beginning of um, uh, of an industry. I uh, learned the business by doing these municipal uh, financings, um, but then saw a niche for social purpose corporations. And it was where you know, it hit my heart because I wanted, um, again, very early on to um, a very strong sense of public purpose. I wanted to root out the bad politicians and write about it. That's how I started life. And then I saw those guys in that room. I'm like, okay, who's really controlling the situation? The money people. I'm like, okay, well, let's use the money for good. Okay. And so that's how my career got started. I also heard you say that being a journalist, you wouldn't make very much money. Yeah, and it wasn't about making like making money. That wasn't the objective. It was like paying for this incredibly expensive education. Had I not had the burden of that or thinking about that, I probably would have made different decisions. Yes, yes. So this work, you've learned about working at the pub. You worked your way through college. You found out about trading and investment banking by working. So what do you see as work or the domain of work right now? Oh, that's an enormous question. Um, in my um, uh, doctoral research, one of the important things that I wanted to tackle was what does work mean? Because oftentimes people only can conceptualize as the stuff you do to earn a paycheck uh, or what you do in your day-to-day. -day. And for me, my big questions about all of this um, are much deeper. So for me, what work means is all of our actions in the world. Vernon, think about all the things you do every day that you will never receive monetary comp compensation for. But they're still that, the, that action is still valuable and still important. And for me, that encompasses work. So work is every action that we do in the world. Um, opening our eyes in the morning is work. I mean, depending upon what you did the night before, it could be really hard work. Uh, but it's work <laughs> nevertheless because uh, you are um, making – think it's, it's like the pebble you put in the pond and it has ripples. That's Our actions have those ripples so that our work impacts uh, every domain of existence. And so you've gotten me to an existential space. So I don't know if that's well, where you want to go in this conversation, but uh, well, that's what work we're going to take a break, and I'd like to come back and talk more about work, particularly every action that you take in the world. Every action you take in the world is work. I like that, but let's come back and talk about that. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. This is WOL News Talk 1450 AM and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We're talking to Dr. Don this morning, and we were talking about work. Uh, we, we got that you grew up in Ohio. Your father had a pub, and you worked every job in there except slinging the, the alcohol, uh, and you learned how to work, work your way through college. And in working, you found out about Wall Street and investment banking and chose that you wanted to do that work, and you did. In your research, you talk about solidarity economy. What is solidarity economy, and how does that relate to work? Oh, good question. Well, there'll be an entire book about it uh, coming soon um, to a bookstore near you, but 
for our conversation now, the most important thing to understand is that the solidarity economy, those, those words, have been floating around for decades. And the United Nations actually just this past spring came together and actually passed a resolution to give um, some formality to that uh, concept. And really the easiest and best way to understand it is simply it's a frame. It's a way of um, thinking. It's a, um, it's an evolving concept. Um, uh, related to economic and social uh, justice. And so it's a way we can think about understanding economic activities that prioritize social value and social profit over the idea of maximizing at any cost profit. It's in no way uh, socialism. It's a way of balancing um, and incorporating a, a really important concept called social value. So the solidarity economy is a broad term used to describe this change in mindset. That's interesting because I had not had a definition of solidarity economy. And in talking about it a lot on this show, I created a definition that is when a group of people come together, okay, as opposed to working independently, they come together Mm-hmm. often in co-ops and mm-hmm. they form this business and they work together and that is the core of the solidarity economy and then when you get a lot of these business in an area working together and that's the sixth principle of cooperation cooperation among co-ops then you really get a, a solidarity economy because everybody is working for the good of the group whatever that group is, as opposed to the good of an individual or, as you said, maximizing profits uh, with your greatest return on investment for the shareholder. Um, That was the number one thing. The decisions were made when I went and got my MBA. So that was the focus. So I like this solidarity economy. I didn't think about this framework and a way of thinking. Kind of like that. Yeah, and... And Verdon, what I'll say is uh, I applaud the um, the co-op sector. In fact, it's dear to my heart. One of my early uh, clients uh, at the beginning of my career was actually the National Cooperative Bank. Uh, I was a funding banker to the bank, so I've known them for all, my whole career. So I'm... Uh, those principles are very dear to me, and I've uh, read um, the remnant writings of Father Arismendi from um, Spain, who was the Catholic who founded Mondra- the Mondragon Cooperatives. I'm very familiar with that at a, at a spiritual level and at a, uh, a practical uh, business level, but the work that I do um, takes all of those principles and puts them in other domains. So could you imagine having this um, conversation about solidarity principles with a publicly traded company? Um, there are a few publicly traded companies that are actually um, structured as benefit corporations who have this um, uh, legal permission to manage to mission, uh, but that is just a very, very new thing. Um, and so being able to talk about, for me, solidarity economy puts me in a comfort place in the co-op community because we already get it. Um, but there are other spaces in economic life um, that aren't there yet. And so um, my work is really telling uh, the principles behind all of this in ways that maybe um, turn on a light bulb for people who aren't in that sector. So bravo for being a pioneer. Well, it's, it's phenomenal to, well, like I said, my MBA 
and I wanted to be an investment banker, but it was for me to make money. Okay, that was the the big thing was to become an investment banker to make money. And at some point in my career, making money, it didn't make me happy. Having the big house and the big car, happiness didn't come out of that. And so I started asking other questions. Um, where did you start asking questions about things like, what's your purpose here on life? What's your passion? Well, in a lot of different domains. Professionally, I've asked those questions. Personally, I've asked those questions. I'm the adoptive mother of two, um, well, they're now grown, but they were babies um, in uh, Russia. Um, and actually, they came to me um, through a relationship with the National Co-op Bank, believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yes, they were. Yes, they're. They're not. You know, not in the way you might imagine. But um, one of their executives had um, adopt been one of the first families to adopt American families to adopt uh, children out of Russia, and this was uh, in the late nineties. And um, if anyone knows anything about Russian politics or Russian history, that was a horrible time in Russia. And he shared that experience with me, and um, I said, I just have to go, um, and I did. And um, you asked me about like how does this come about? When did I start asking questions? When I went into an orphanage and there were about 350 children under the age of five and the place was silent. Oh. Think about that. It's like you, you go think about your grandchildren or your own children and you're like two of them get together and it's like chaos. Um, these are hundreds of them. And for me, I thought, there's something profoundly wrong. Um, and what does that have to do with solidarity or any of these things? It has to do with the dignity of the human person. And for me, um, that is at the core of the work that I do in finance because, you know, in finance, we we just, we're, um, we're facilitators. We're buyers and sellers of money. That's what we do. Um, and storytellers, right? We tell the stories of those who need capital to those who have excess capital to invest. Um, and so the storytelling that happens in the meantime uh, can be that shyster stuff, but I don't think that's good banking. Um, there's a lot of bad banking out there. Um, but then there's the really meaningful stuff, which is how do you um, uh, mitigate risk or explain risk by um, getting deep into the stories about why. Why do businesses make the decisions that they make um, or choose to make uh, decisions of inaction? Um, and so it was that economic activity. It was that profound experience of um uh, being uh, appalled at a an injustice uh, that got me thinking. So that was like the planting of the seeds. Um, and then many, 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 many years later, um, I came to uh, be doing the work that I do. But it, for me, it was a very personal question at the end of my banking career. Well, I didn't know it was the end of my banking career, traditional banking career. I, I just had this moment where I met Jamie Dimon of um, J.P. Morgan in the elevator one day. Um, he was going up to the 50th floor and I was going to 42 in our headquarters in New York. And I, I said, oh, you know, I met a friend of yours last night. And it's true, I'd had. I was with one of our association clients um, who preempted their event uh, because uh, President Bill Clinton um, was in New York. This is, he had just had his um, heart surgery. He was a former president. And I'd never heard him speak before. And it was an incredible night. Um, so I shared that experience with Jamie Dimon. And he said, oh, that's nice. And uh, we got, and I referenced what he had preempted and got off at 42. And I'm like, hmm, 
what do I do with this experience? Because if anyone in your audience knows anyone uh, at uh, J.P. Morgan, there's always this um, uh, story. And uh, so my, that wasn't going to be the end of my story. So he sent me an email back um, uh, pretty immediately. And it was that pivotal moment. I'm like, he's just a guy. And I'm just a woman. It's like, what am I doing? I'm like, is this where I'm supposed to be? And it's like uh, one of those cannonball moments where it just shocks you. And you're like, okay, now what? And so that's where it all got started. That's where the, the pivot came to the work that I do now. Okay. And the work you do now, this pivotable point happened in the elevator, <laughs> going to the 44th yeah. floor. Yeah. And you got that the head of J.P. Morgan is just a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're a woman. And therefore, what it is that you want to do with your life? What's your passion? What's your purpose? And we're going to take our second break, but I want to come back and talk about the kinds of work that you're doing now from the bar to Wall Street to what you're doing now. And, and, and that is that is really when I talk about talking more about this we haven't mentioned it, but this contributed justice. You, you mentioned economic and social justice, but how do you get justice for the masses of people? We'll be right back. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Dr. Don Carpenter on with us today. And Dr. Don, in her early career, talked about working with NCB. She said she was the funding banker to the bank. And National Co-op Bank has been the supporter, Don, of this program for almost, we're almost 10 years now. October will be on 10 years. And they have been a great sponsor, not only financially, but giving us ideas of who to talk to and what's going on in the cooperative world. They've just been phenomenal. And I have it that they are all about economic and social justice. And you mentioned that in the framework of solidarity economy. But I wanted you to tell us what is contributive justice? Well, to answer that question, it comes for me in my work from two different domains, from the domain of theology, but also from the domain of philosophy. And imagine this concept of justice um, very, very simply being just the duty that we owe to each other. Imagine the loaf of bread in its slices. You've probably heard of um, uh, restorative justice. There are different um, ways to understand this big, complicated concept of the duty that we owe to each other. So one of those slices of bread, I argue, is something called contributive justice. I did not invent this. I found in my research, this term has been used in I don't know, eight or nine different disciplines. And I was, in my research, answering this question, what does God have to say about the nature of work and the responsibilities of wealth? And so for me, um, the work of Dr. Martin Luther King was very um, transformative. He used this concept of being a co-worker with God. And I thought, okay, well, if that's the case, and I believe it to be true for all kinds of theological reasons, but if that were to be true, what is the human value at the heart of this concept of being a co-worker? 
And for me, the value that I chose, because in my field, we study human values, was the value of contribution. So when you're working, you're making a contribution, right? That's pretty easy to understand. Mm -hmm. But at its, um, if you stretch that out and at its inverse, the complete opposite of that would be marginalization. So that begins the the seeds of a framework of ethics or a a way to understand uh, yet another dimension of justice, which is this value of contribution. So what is the definition of contributive justice in those different disciplines I mentioned? Some give a definition that really focuses on um, contribution as a right, like we should be able to contribute. And then there are others who focus on this duty component, like, oh, we have an obligation to contribute. And so in my work, in the frame of this theological frame of being a co-worker, it puts the two together. So the definition that um, in, I use in my research is that contributive justice is a dimension of justice that concerns both the right and the obligation of each of us to contribute our efforts, our resources, and our talents. Why? For our own flourishing, but also for the flourishing of others so that we can develop societies where the measure of justice, how we think about how healthy our societies are, is how we evaluate how each of us um, are able to contribute and flourish within the social framework that we have. I mean, it's a different experience in the United States, kind of culturally and politically, for example, as it might be in, you know, in South America or in Asia or in Europe. But it's this idea that we all have an innate human dignity, and that dignity emanates from the, the creator who created us. Some people aren't, you know, um, their head isn't um, conceptually thinking about creator and, and creature. Some people have no faith at all, um, and ju- just people of goodwill. But in their heart, they can understand that, you know, you don't kill people, you don't um, harm people. There's a, you know, a, a general base understanding of what we do and what we don't do. But um, everybody knows how it feels to be excluded, right? I mean, you think about your childhood. I was not chosen for a sports team, or someone made fun of me, or whatever. That that gives you a sense of what it feels like to have a contributive injustice. You're marginalized. You're put to the side. You're not able to contribute some of who you are or all of who you are. And so um, contributive justice theory is a, is a way to um, think about a framework of ethics that – what is ethics? Ethics is simply just a, a way of telling us what we should do. We don't always do it because um, there are people who are unethical. Um, and there are different ways of approaching what is the right thing to do. But um, contributive justice ethics would say that um, – we we owe each other because of you know the nature of of who we are as humans um to be able to develop into uh, you hear this expression a lot nowadays the the best version of ourselves mm-hmm. um but i think there's a lot of truth to that because not only for our own kind of selfish reasons but also if we don't do that we rob everyone we encounter with the joy of interacting with us because there's something that i might say or do to you vernon that like sparks an inspiration you're like Dr. Don, I'm so glad we had this conversation because now I'm going to do da-da-da-da-da. Or I'm going to connect so-and-so and so. And then you can imagine the ripple effect that happens. It's like that whole pay-it-forward concept, but at a way that's just an everyday, normal kind of way of being. So when I get this contributive justice, uh, where I grew up is where much is given, much is expected as a way of life or in, in the church. Also, it was 
10% tithing or more, mm-hmm. uh, your time, talents, uh, treasure. Right. It, was, it, was, it was taught of giving and helping and supporting. And the more you got, that doesn't seem to be in the American capitalistic society. Our society today of the people that get the most, the one percenters, feel like they need to be given to the masses or giving what they got. As a matter of fact, it seems to be the opposite. They want to create policies uh, that would give them more and more and more and more as opposed to them helping more people. What do you think about that? Yes. Well, it's sad, actually. Um, and why is it sad? It's sad for the for the 99%. But I think it's even more sad for the 1%. Why? Because there's tremendous capacity for amazing things when we open ourselves up. Um, so I'm not saying uh, take all of this you know, family wealth that was created by who knows what means and just give it away. But be, um, I don't know, be... Be, I don't, as smart is not the word I'm looking for. It's like be um, hopeful and imaginative of the seeds you could sow. It's like you reap what you sow. It's like go plant some seeds because the harvest that you're going to get will be incredible. And you will have no idea in probably in this lifetime because if um, if you understand this concept, it's like I impact one person who then impacts another person and becomes exponential. And so if, if a, a person with wealth looks at that wealth that way, it becomes very powerful and invigorating and exciting as opposed to, oh, I'm just going to fund this program or that program. They're going to go off and do whatever it is they do. And hopefully it will reach the people at the the level being served. But rather than serving someone um, or giving someone, it's like, why don't you use those resources to empower those people so that they can grow and develop? Because you know what's going to happen? You know, any rich person should understand this idea. I mean, anyone who understands compound interest, you know, it's like you know, let the the uh, the resources get to work fast, and then they multiply, and the multiplied dividends multiply, and it becomes enormous. So for me, we talked about work and my work, but also the wealth component of what I do. I help people understand that wealth is not only what's in your bank account, your investment account, or pockets, or whatever. It's also um, spiritual wealth. So for me, I have um, some spiritual poverty because one of the things I have trouble with is patience. And so it's a virtue that I have to work on. So I have a deficit in my um, patience account uh, at the spiritual bank. But think about the wealth of someone who has patience, um, what they can do or what they can watch happen, where I might say, oh, forget it, I'm gone, I'm doing something else. But if you are if you have the richness of that virtue, um, it's tremendously um I think it's more powerful sometimes than, quite frankly, a, a huge bank account because it can be more impactful to your life. I'm not, you know, I'm touting a virtue that I don't have enough of, but I mean, there are other, there are other virtues. I mean, think of temperance or fortitude. Like, imagine if you were a person who had a, a negative balance in fortitude. What is fortitude? It's just like it, that stick to itiveness. Mm-hmm. Like for me, the the road I had to travel to to get to where I am today. I think I've been blessed with a wealth of fortitude. Yep, a wealth of fortitude. You know, it's moving forward. Don, I really like this whole idea of wealth other than money. The different kinds of things that one can do to create wealth. And from at least what I've gotten so far, Don, is how you can help others. How you can take whatever skills you've got, whatever knowledge you have, whatever finances you have, 
and help others. And again, that's why I like this whole co-op world, because you're helping people to learn how to create business, create jobs, create their financial wealth, but they also learn how to work together. And you create all of that other wealth that you're talking about. So that's, again, why I really like the co-op world. Me too. <laughs> okay. So what I want to talk about next is your Solidary Economy Workshop. But before we talk about that, the kinds of things that you're doing in that workshop at Georgetown, how does storytelling come into play in, in the work that you do? Mm. Well, I mentioned that for me, storytelling began way at the beginning of my banking career. People talk now much more about the concept of storytelling because I think there is a, a greater and greater awareness of the power of narrative stories. Because if I were to teach you something as a professor, as an example, you may or may not remember you know, a third of what I tell you. But um, if I can tell it to you in a story, you're going to remember and so for me, storytelling is critical to, um, to use as a pedagogical teaching tool. And um, what it means in the work that I do related to economics is really to, I don't know, do the, the God language. Um, the, the values that are embedded in this contributive justice theory show up in every story that we tell on our podcast, in our upcoming docuseries, and in the, the feature film that we're going to be making with the Vatican. So storytelling is where you get the knowledge across by telling stories. So. Yeah, and that's how we choose our stories. Okay. So we're going to take our final break now. And we've talked about you're working in the pub, going to school, working your way through school, getting out and working in Wall Street, and then getting a doctorate and working at Georgetown. Work has a lot to do with it. When we come back, I want to talk more about the work you're doing at Georgetown in podcast and streaming and documentaries. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. is power. WOL has been a great sponsor to this show. The show is Everything Co-op, and I'm your host, Vernon Oaks, and we're talking to Don Carpenter. The reason WOL has been a, a great partner is because their motto is information is power, and I have it that information is stored power. You have to go to action. To get the power, you have to put action to it. So I want to talk to Dr. Don now about the actions that she's doing in the Solidarity Economy Workshop. Tell us about some of those actions. Oh, Vernon, I love WOL's um, mantra because it is an embodiment of this idea of contributive justice because it's one thing to you have all this stored up capacity, but it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't get you there until you put that into action and that's your contribution. So thank you for the commercial for me too. <laughs> so, so you asked me about what I do at Georgetown. Well, I um, plant uh, seeds in young minds to think about how they can use their skills in the solidarity economy. So I have some students who come from business, some students who come from public policy, 
School of Foreign Service, all kinds of places within the university find their way uh, from time to time into my orbit. So I do work in um, uh, with students. Um, I also do, the primary work that I do is in uh, media outreach. I'm what they would call a, um, a public scholar. Colleagues of mine in the university work in the traditional academy where their research goes out into um, academic journals and they're in that, um, that space of ideas. My um, classroom, my journals are in the public sphere. So I take these concepts that um, might not be accessible to everyday people because they're not reading professional journals um, in, you know, in these very um, niche disciplines. Uh, they're out in the world doing their thing. And so I bring this knowledge out to people through podcasts, through um, we're now in uh, negotiations on a video version of the podcast, uh, not just me as a talking head, but uh, me out in the world introducing um, the viewers to the friends of Dr. Dawn. And then I mentioned uh, a documentary film uh, with the Vatican. So I'm uh, as I say, a, a public intellectual. Um, that's that's what I do at Georgetown. Okay, Miss Public Intellectual. <laughs> that sounds snooty. Wait a second. Let's, <laughs> say, let's say that a different way. <laughs> I, I'm a, a democratizer of learning. Okay. Um, okay. What is this feature film about that you're doing a documentary on? Well, thank you for asking about that because it's incredibly exciting and daunting to me. In the spring of 2019, Pope Francis put a call out to the young people of the world. And in his frame, uh, the, the young people meant 25 to 40 year olds. So they're uh, people who have been out and they've been educated, they're out in the working world, but self-identify as economists, entrepreneurs, or change makers. So in 2019, in the spring, he said, okay, I wanna gather a group of you in Assisi, Italy, to think about how we might reimagine the way we think about economic life. And for him, it was really because of the uh, spirit of St. Francis of Assisi, who heard the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor in his time. And think about what that means in our time, the cry of the earth, think about the ex existential issues related to climate change and the cry of the poor. Think about the tremendous uh, uh, wealth inequality that we are experiencing um, on planet Earth, um, let alone in our own country. And so he said to these young people, come to see us. And so thousands of them applied and about 2,000 were chosen. And later that year in 2019, I was speaking, I don't fall in that age range, unfortunately, but um, I was speaking at an ethics conference and someone heard me. And a couple of weeks later, I received a, um, a letter from the Vatican saying, we um, would like to invite you to be what they call a senior advisor, which I think is just kind of a grown up in the room, uh, gray hair in the room. Um, uh, to one of the, the working groups of this very large um, conference. And I said, well, of course I'll come. And so they attached me to a working group called Finance and Humanity, and there are 12 of these different working groups. So the point is that we were all supposed to meet in Assisi, Italy, in March of 2020. Do you remember what was happening in March of 2020? Yep. It was the, the global, we all do, right? Um, but uh, Italy was um, kind of ground zero at the time. And what did these young people do? They uh, got connected online through uh, primarily Zoom and WhatsApp, um, the, the uh, messaging uh, platform. And uh, what would have been perhaps a conference where you know these young people come and then they go back to their home countries and they go about their, their lives, 
what happened was because everyone was in lockdown, we got into very deep uh, relationship building. And um, so what I've been asked to do was four years later is to tell the world about the first fruits of what happened to these um, this international group of young people who um, wanted to reimagine or imagine putting a new soul in the economy, which is a very hard you know, concept maybe to understand, but it's a way to kind of humanize economic life in the spirit of these solidarity economy principles that we were just talking about. You mentioned Pope Francis, and Georgetown is a part of the Catholic Church education. I hear a lot in the news about things that may go wrong in the Catholic Church, but I don't hear all this good stuff. And you mentioned Aris Mende and Mondragon uh, in the 40s. Um, the Catholic Church has done a lot to help poor people start their own businesses, create their dignity and financial wealth. But I don't hear this in the news about the work that's being done. Do you have any sense of why that's the case? Or is it just that, is it not, is it in the news and I don't hear it? Or is it not in the news? Oh, you know, Vernon, that's actually, for me, one of the, the tragedies of life because there is so much embedded in the principles, the social principles that come out of this faith tradition that apply to uh, that ha and have general acceptance among people of goodwill outside of the, this particular faith community. And I think what you've hit on is that a, you know, they're not enough storytellers. So we need to, um, to, to increase the storytellers, but also there's a lot in the news, uh, and rightfully so, about um, abuses, um, not only in our faith community, but also in others. And so it's turned off a lot of people to religion. Um, and so there's like this natural friction. It's like, okay, I don't hear about it. Why don't I hear about it? Because, you know, the people who control the gatekeepers of news, you know, they're, they're writing and talking about other aspects of um, the faith. And so uh, this good stuff that you describe isn't being talked about. A, because there aren't enough voices, but um, now I'm actually hopeful because of with with new media technology, it enables us to, to get out there. But uh, your listeners may document social encyclical, not about a doctrine of the faith, but how we live our faith, came at the uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the church saw the tremendous abuses of child labor, of the uh, the sweatshops, uh, the poor houses, and said, this, this cannot stand, and uh, penned the first social encyclical, I think it was in 1861, or 91 rather, and, um, uh, and that's what started it all. And uh, it's an incredible story. I mean, the story of um, what the church has done over the years um, to help advance issues like um, the right to associate. Imagine uh, we have it embedded in our constitution, the right of association, but the church had to say, yes, we stand up for people who labor and um, has been a strong advocate of um, the ability of, of workers to choose whether or not to associate themselves in a union so as to have a voice in their work. Um, that's radical. Well, that came in the 1800s, and we've been doing all kinds of things ever since. But you're right. The question as to why, I also, Vernon, believe that there's evil in the world. Okay. Uh, and sometimes the good angels uh, get drowned out a little bit, but I, you know, I don't get stuck in that place very long. I just think that um, more of us need to go out and tell stories. Um, 
and uh, you know just just sit in a spend a Sunday afternoon with the church ladies. Um, I'm a member of St. Augustine's Parish in uh, Washington DC and what a vibrant um, community there and a rich history and so many stories to tell. Okay I may want to come and sit and talk to the church ladies one evening. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what do you have for the future? What do you see in your work uh, and the work of the church? Oh, well, I think for me, it's just you go to sometimes you go to um, worship service and there there aren't people there. And for me, my dream is that more people understand um, the beautiful things. You know, forget about like the um, don't forget about it because we need to um, to own it and, you know, repair it. But just understand that there's beauty there. Um, life is beautiful and it needs to be shared. You know, we're, we weren't designed to be solitary creatures. We were meant to be in community. And as you would say, in cooperation, you know, we need to live it every day, Sunday included. Okay. And uh, all throughout the week. We're out of time. <laughs> and you just almost ended my, what I normally say at the end of the show is, We'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. And that's what we do. Don, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the, the pleasure's all mine. All right. Bye. News Talk 1450 WOLAN, where information is power.